Last week, we spent the bulk of our time talking about the biblical principles or ideas of authority and obedience. And it was, I mean, more or less my contention that um, as a culture, we don't properly understand authority because we don't really believe in God. And I don't, I'm not talking about maybe not specifically this congregation or congregations gathered all over the world this Sunday, but <clears throat> we make up a, a, a minority of the community in which this church exists. Um, you might be the minority in your household if you're a believer. The majority of the culture, from my perspective, has rejected faith in God and, in fact, has deleted God consciousness for the most part. And so when you do that, authority can really only be understood in terms of brute force and who has it and who can impose um, authoritative will with force. Um, when you watch, you know, nature documentaries, it becomes pretty clear pretty quick that whoever, like whichever creature is biggest, strongest, fastest, and has the sharpest teeth is the one who has authority, so to speak, in the animal kingdom. That's who wins. Um, but it's really not supposed to be that way uh, for humankind, but here we are. A, a, a culture which has embraced the gospel like any church supposedly has, that culture will be oriented differently and organized differently than the animal kingdom, right? <clears throat> we understand that authority flows from the creator, which is God, that authority belongs exclusively to the creator, which is God, but that his authority has been entrusted to creatures to be exercised. So parents, um, pastors, bosses, civil government officials ought to exercise authority with the understanding that it doesn't belong to them. You treat something differently when you're a steward of it, when you're a caretaker of it. And here's the fascinating thing about human nature. You will take better care of something that you borrow from a friend than you will ever take care of your own things, generally speaking. So authority, if it belongs to God and it flows to creatures in order to be exercised, those creatures to whom that authority has flown ought to take really, really good care of it. Um, that means that if you are an office holder, that, and the office has some authority with it, you don't wield the authority of that office for your own pleasure, uh, but for the benefit over the ones over whom you're exercising authority. That's the way it's supposed to work. You can see then, when a, when a, when a person in authority is abusing it by analyzing who benefits the most from them holding that office? Okay, like an office holder who enriches themselves by the authority entrusted to them is probably abusing the authority. And the principle applies to parents 
as well as to government, because I know everybody just thought of Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell, whoever your least favorite is. You just thought of them uh, instead of turning that principle and shining it on yourself. <clears throat> if you're a mom or a dad or a cheer captain or whatever, if you have some authority, you should be employing it to the benefit of those over whom you have it. It also becomes obvious that authority is being abused because threats, force, deceitfulness, and irritation will mark the organization which is led by an abusive leader. If authority holders function as representatives of God, they will ultimately help those over whom they have authority. So instead of dysfunction and hurt and confusion and suspicion that grows under selfish authority, you'll see an environment of organization, blessing, clarity, understanding. So a good leader leads understanding that their authority comes from God, okay? And then children, employees, church members, citizens ought to obey authority with the understanding that they too are accountable to God. The Bible, thank God, whenever it instructs us to obey authority, includes a corresponding warning to the authority holder, which is what we're going to really focus on today. Uh, so Colossians 3, I don't know if I changed it or not, 25, yay. Okay, Colossians 3.25 says, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, this is 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I'm sure whoever made these chapter and verse divisions is way smarter than I am, but this one really does not make sense to me at all. This, in my mind, pretty clearly belongs at the end of chapter 3. So that's how I'm going to deal with the text. There are two types of wrongdoers in view in this passage. I'm telling you, it's amazing and a great principle for every public speaker to utilize. If you're not paying attention to yourself while you're talking, odds are neither is your audience, right? So every now and then I'll catch myself distracted by a thought and yet my mouth is still running. I'm still talking about whatever I loaded up into my brain before I had that distracting thought. And I'm really trying to cultivate the discipline to stop because why would you focus if I can't? If I'm so boring, I can't pay attention to myself. That's too much to ask of you. Here we go. Two types of wrongdoers in view in, in this, in this uh, verse 25, where it says the wrongdoer will be paid back. The first type of wrongdoer is the one who disobeys authority. The first type of wrongdoer is the one who disobeys authority, and then the second one is the one who abuses authority. Um, I realize you might feel like, for crying out loud, you beat this horse to death last week. What else is there to say about it? Why didn't you just include these two verses in the reading so that we could soldier on? But there, there is something I did not mention last week. And I think this is really important and really helpful. What are you supposed to do when the authority over you is evil, unjust, and self-serving? That's not an easy question to answer. So think about it like this. If you 
emerge from childhood or employment or marriage or citizenship to a government with wounds from an abusive authority holder. If you come out from under authority uh, and you're wounded because of that authority, like a sermon about the importance of obedience may not be the most helpful thing for you. Does that make sense? It may be, but it may not be. So the way I'm thinking about this is, It's like we don't need anything in addition to our natural rebellion to spur us to disobey, reject all authority, hate everyone with power. Like it's all too common for those we're supposed to obey to be evil of abuses and evils, to, to be guilty of abuses and evils that scar us for the rest of our lives. Okay, And we don't need the help being disobedient. Like... If, if, if being abused by authority yields, and I think it does, yields a harvest of suspicion and hatred and outright rebellion in the heart of the one who's been abused, it, it's not uncommon for that suspicion and hatred and evil supposition to be directed at even those who are not abusive with their authority. Because here's the deal. There's nothing like a good excuse when you were going to disobey anyway. I don't feel like I'm saying anything that should be such a struggle to understand, but I take it from your silence, I'm wrong. The human condition is such that we are bent towards disobedience. It's our natural inclination. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to disobey. They come out and they're like, oh, I, I got this. No problem. Never, and it's not like, I, I love that you know, modern parenting is, well, it's environmental. They learn it from their environment. Not once in, in almost 20 years of marriage have my children ever seen me <laughs> try to bite Lisa's arm because she wouldn't give me something that I wanted. <laughs> I didn't teach them that. They came up with that. that it's, it's, so that's the bent of human beings. We're just, we're... we're <clears throat> crooked in the direction of disobedience. It doesn't help when then already bent that way, you come under authority that bends you further that way, that pushes you further towards disobedience. And then you finally, for whatever reason, maybe you graduate high school and get out of the psychotic parent's house. You quit the job and go to work for a better employer that's not all toxic. You leave the church and come to another one that doesn't have a pastor building a kingdom unto himself. But then you treat the new uh, authority in your life with the same kind of looking out of the corner of your eye at him as you did the previous abusive one. It's because rebellion's in our nature. So I just want to comfort you a little bit. If you felt like I was setting up to attack you, I would never, first of all. Second of all, when I said at the outset 
that every time the scriptures give us a, a, an obedience to authority directive, there's a corresponding warning. You should have been like, oh, cool. We're going to talk about the red flag that this text is raising in front of those who wield authority. Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, listen, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how winsome your personality is. It doesn't matter how funny you are. It doesn't matter how tall, how short, how handsome, how beautiful how charming it doesn't matter how engaging and dynamic a public speaker you are it doesn't matter if you abuse authority you'll be paid back and by the one from whom all authority flows that's the biblical reality the wrongdoer will be repaid so turn to first samuel 22 that's back a ways kind of past the middle of your bible but not quite all the way to the beginning. 1 Samuel 22. Or tap menu, click on books, select 1 Samuel. I'm going to start at verse 1, but I'm going to skip a little bit. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And his brothers and all his father's house, when they heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and, and there were with him about 400 men. All right, so now skip down to verse 6. Saul heard that David had been discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tam uh, tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand, Saul's favorite weapon, right? And all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you've all conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he said, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he, he is risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your own bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I've asked of God for him? No, let the king impute, do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, that Saul said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and your father's house. And then the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David. And, and they knew that he fled and didn't disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. 
And the king said to Doag, you do it. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man, woman, child, and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. Three features here of an authority abuser. And it does not take a degree in sociology or psychology to identify these and point them out. So I expect hearty agreement as I work through them. First, Saul is paranoid. He thinks that David is out to get him when all David has done is serve him. Authority abusers generally are paranoid because when your own motives are corrupt, you tend to assume that the motives of everyone else are corrupt too. Second, Saul is manipulative. He suggests that David has promised power, money, land, and influence if these other people will serve him. Authority abusers often do this because the only way they can engender support for themselves is to suggest that supporting someone else is a sign that, quote, you're selfish, you don't care about doing what's right, or some other variation of, it's evil to oppose me. The second reason they do this is similar to their paranoia. Abusive leaders can't imagine or fathom how another man gets power except by manipulation. Having never experienced the joy of having the people follow him simply because he's a good leader, Saul sees David accumulating followers and assumes that he's as evil as Saul is and ascribes his own motives to David. Third, Saul is deceitful. He implies that David is a liar and a scoundrel and portrays himself as a poor victim. Note to anybody that's ever in government leadership, if you find yourself slaughtering priests, just double check. That's Just double check that what you're doing is right. Uh, but authority abusers often do this deceit thing because uh, you have to imply that rightness, righteousness is best expressed by loyalty to me. Right? So, if you want to be known as righteous, I will help you be known as righteous to whatever degree you support my agenda. Now, Saul implies that no one is loyal to him because this is the last ditch effort, right? Everyone is against him and nobody cares about doing what's right. That's basically the implication. Thus, Saul paints himself like the gentle little lamb and depicts David as this upstart, rebel, malcontent scoundrel. By these methods, manipulation and deceit, authority abusers will seduce some and gaslight some into all kinds of bad behavior. And there's a reason for this. From what I've observed and read and studied. It works something like this. Most, like, most abusive types, other than beating their own wives and kids, don't really want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to be seen 
doing the abusing publicly. So they have to employ uh, like other people to do their dirty work. So they amass an army of flying monkeys to take care of that stuff for them. And when people start to catch on, the abuser will simply ostracize his existing flying monkeys in order to attract new ones and replace the ones who've grown wise. So what happens in this story is even though people have grown wise to Saul's shtick and they're, they're, they've stopped telling him what David is up to and they've quit responding to his tyrannical edicts to persecute David, the priest Ahimelech, who had allowed David in the previous chapter to take the showbread and Goliath's sword, this guy didn't know that David was fleeing Saul. And the reason he didn't know is because David lied to him and said, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. Nobody can know what I'm doing. I need food and a sword. And so Ahimelech, having been deceived by David, provides David what he needs. Complicates things a little bit, right? It complicates things. Like you want to root for David, but you're like, well, he lied. We want a cleaner hero than that. This is why Rahab is hard to root for, because you're like, well, she was a prostitute. And she lied to save the prophets, right? But the reality is this. Ahimelech didn't know David was fleeing from Saul, so when he gets summoned before Saul, he tries to reason with him. And he's like, come on, Saul, think about this with me. Your majesty, David's your son-in-law. Like you liked him enough at one point to marry Michal, your daughter, to him. What happened? He's like, wait, your majesty, there's really nobody else that serves you as faithfully as David does. What, what is your problem with him? Then he tries, he tries, wait a minute, your majesty, nobody serves God the way David serves God. And I feel like, I mean, I wasn't there, but I kind of feel like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. In Saul's mind, because his response to Ahimelech's reasonable retort is, somebody kill him. Homicide, murder rises up. Thankfully, the guard refuses. Now, this is probably a tense moment. And the Bible hilariously breezes over tense moments in interpersonal relationships without really clarifying that for us. But if you just imagine the scenario, how many times before has Saul ordered his guards to ruthlessly kill somebody without any kind of a trial and they've just done it? But now they're starting to wake up, right? They're, they're starting to realize that Saul might be wrong. So they're growing disobedient. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay. Two principles for disobedience. Biblical. Principle number one. When someone in authority directs you to do something which is contrary to God's word, you must obey God rather than men. Glad Matt agrees with me. The most stark biblical example of this can be found, <clears throat> excuse me, in Acts chapter 5. Um, they arrest the apostles. Um, 
and then an angel of the Lord or the Holy Spirit sets them free from the prison and they go right back out and start preaching the gospel again. Uh, before they, they, the chief priests that arrested him can even talk to him, they get set free. It's hilarious. So while the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees are all gathered together trying to, eh, well, what are we going to do about these apostles proclaiming a resurrected Jesus Christ? Somebody comes in and goes, hey, hey didn't you guys arrest the apostles? Because they're out preaching right now in the temple courtyard. And the priests and scribes and Pharisees are like, what? Bring them in here. So now the guards that go to get the apostles don't force them. They ask them if you'll please come. And so, because it's like, well, we locked you up once and you're out. So you're going to do whatever you want. So the, the apostles come in before the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. And, and the elders and, and scribes say, uh, listen, here's the deal. We're not going to kill you, but we are going to require that you stop proclaiming the gospel. And so here's how Peter responds. We must obey God rather than men. Not hard. Not difficult. We must obey God rather than men. So disobedience to earthly authority must always be done with that kind of clear, direct explanation. You can't just ignore the command, do whatever you want, and then cite your religious convictions afterwards. As a convenient scapegoat. 1 Samuel 22 doesn't tell us what Saul's guard said. It just says he didn't obey. Right? We don't know what happened here. But we know what happened in Acts 5. So if you're going to disobey an authority in your life. Because they're directing you to do something contrary to the will of God. Clearly commanded will of God. You have to tell them that that's what you're doing. That's principle number one. Principle number two, uh, Saul turns to Doeg, the Edomite, a foreigner. And here's a flying monkey cut from Saul's cloth, right? A horrifying thing happens when an abusive leader <laughs> gains the support and employ of a true psychopath. Doeg couldn't care less about right or wrong. He wants power, and Saul offers it to him. So principle two is this. When, in obedience to God you disobey an abusive leader, you'll probably just get replaced by a more willing follower. So you'll lose whatever status that you had as a compliant follower and all the corresponding benefits. We don't know what becomes of Saul's unnamed guard because it's not really the point of the text, but I can assure you he paid a price for his disobedience. But here's the principle. Here's the principle. Obedience to God usually costs you something especially when you have to be disobedient to bad authority on earth in order to be obedient to God. In Daniel 6, <clears throat> I mean, you probably all know the story. Um, I'll summarize it really quickly. Da Daniel rises to the top of the leadership, the org chart in the Babylonian kingdom. Right. I mean, he's not king, but he's the most well-regarded servant of the king. And the other servants of the king uh, do what other servants do and get jealous of Daniel. And they're like, we got to get rid of him. But they can't catch him doing anything wrong. So they invent this scheme where they convince Darius, the king, for some reason. I don't 
wish I could have been there to see how this worked. Hey, you know what you should do, Darius? You should issue an edict that for uh, one month, for 30 days, or 20, I don't remember, 29 or 30 days, um, nobody can, nobody can uh, appeal to any authority except for yours. And if anybody does, then they'll be thrown to the lion's in the lion's den. And so Darius is like, that sounds like a great idea. I don't know if Daniel's off on vacation or what when this whole conversation happens, but this king doesn't get good advice and it appears he can't function without it. So they suggest this to him. They write up the edict for him. He seals it with his signet ring. Daniel comes back into the picture and from his bedroom window, which is apparently visible to the courtyard below, he continues three times a day to bow and pray and, and seek the Lord. Um, and then these other advisors, you know, happen to walk in right as he's doing this and got him. And they go tell Darius and Darius is like, ah, oh. because he likes Daniel. And Daniel ends up in the lion's den because Daniel refuses to obey a mandate that countermands the clearly laid out commandment of God. It costs him something. He ends up in the lion's den. Now, granted, he gets out, he's fine. We're not promised the same thing. And to prove it, I would just point at John the Baptist, who insisted on preaching a gospel of repentance to Herod. Herod gets the hots for his brother's wife, marries her after, you know, I'm sure they were doing inappropriate things and they, she ends up divorcing Herod's brother. So he marries her. John rolls in and he's like, hey, what you guys are doing is gross. And God hates it, and you need to repent. Can you imagine? I mean, in our culture, this would be the equivalent to me going to my VP and saying, hey, supporting the LGBTQ community is gross, and you need to repent. Guess who's not doing that? Maybe I'm a coward, uh, Maybe that was a bad illustration. But that's what John the Baptist does. And Herod has him thrown in prison. And then, but the weird thing is, periodically, he'll bring John the Baptist out and be like, hey, tell me to repent again. And John the Baptist says, you need to repent. What you're doing is evil. And Herod goes, Ooh, all right, go back to your cell. It's really weird. He likes hearing it. It's what the text says. Well, ultimately... John the Baptist loses his head because he refused to stop proclaiming repentance to Herod. So these two principles teach us something about godly disobedience. If you have to obey, <coughs> sorry, if you have to disobey human authority, you'd better be able to cite the biblical principle upon which you are standing. There are far too many so-called Christians who excuse sinful rebellion under the banner of religious principles. In reality, they're, they're just serving themselves and their own preferences. So if you're enjoying yourself in your rebellion, I mean, you might want to triple check whether what you're doing is honoring to God or honoring to yourself. I can tell you from experience, and this is all I'll say about it. I can tell you from experience, obeying God in defiance to earthly authority is painful, disruptive, and costly. Second. Don't be surprised if you get replaced pretty quickly. And the abusive leader goes right on doing what they were doing. 
sometimes more flagrantly than before you stood your ground. So Colossians 3.25 says, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this passage should do two things. It should warn the authority holder. That's number one, right? Authority holders who lie, manipulate, oppress, and otherwise use their God-given authority to enrich themselves, they will be paid back. They will be. They will be. I know some of us are like, but will they? Yes, they will. And, and so this is where it's important for us as subordinate people. I don't think there's any, I mean, there might be some high rollers in the room that rule and, and reign, but I'm not aware of, other than Lee, I don't know of any. Uh, Romans 12 He's on the school board. Uh, Romans 12, 14 gives us instructions along the lines of how we are to evaluate those who injure us. Bless those who persecute you. This is Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oops. You need to repent, right? I was watching... Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm going to share this. I was watching Joe Biden's impromptu press conference on the plane. Did you, any of you see this? Just like raw, uncut, unfiltered Joe Biden. And I was like, there's something very wrong here, right? But then I proceeded, just in my own heart, I didn't share it with anybody else, to just mock him. Right? Because of what's happened to the economy since 2020, which I assign some of that blame to his policies, although I'm not sure he's aware of his own policies. And that's not me joking. I'm really not. But the text says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oops. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, guess, guess how you be wise in your own sight. Find somebody dumber. How do you do that? Well, compare yourself to other people. And then think you're better than them. Don't do that, right? Never be wise in your own sight. I've identified that this leader is an abuser of authority. What an idiot. I'm so smart. Don't be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, ugh, there's more? Yep. If your enemy is hungry, <laughs> feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Love that, right? We're like, oh, I'm in. It doesn't say in order to heap burning coals 
on their head. It just says you need to be aware that to whatever degree they don't repent and you continue to bless them. They're making it worse for themselves. But verse 21 says, don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Everybody with me? So here's the deal. (coughs) If you could drag at the end of a chain the most evil abuser in history in your life, if you could chain him up and drag him to the precipice of hell and you glanced down, you would not be able to throw them in. Hell is such a horrifying place that it defies our sense of justice. If we could see hell, we wouldn't want anybody to go there. The repayment that awaits abusers in eternity is incomprehensible to us because we don't understand justice the way God does. And it's his authority that they're abusing. Think about that for a second. The father who mars the image of God. The father who mars the image of God to his own children by being an abusive father. will be repaid. The pastor who mars the image of the good shepherd to the sheep by being abusive with his authority, that pastor will be repaid. The government official, president, senator, congress, whatever, the civic leader who mars the image of the king of kings to his subordinates or her subordinates. These Congress people who come into office with $8,000 and now they have 200 million. Like, how does that happen? Unless you're abusing your authority. They're going to be repaid. They will answer for their evil. And I think it's probably just better for us as Christians, as people who believe the gospel, it's probably better that we pray that God brings those folks to repentance than waste emotional energy on anger fantasies. For us, it's better for us. It's probably better for those abusive leaders too. We can't fathom how horrific God's repayment will be if they do not come to Christ and repent. So that's first. Second, this passage should inspire the subordinate. Our obedience, <coughs> pardon me, is not ultimately owed to, uh, to Joe Biden or uh, Deb Fisher or Pete Ricketts or Mike Flood or Don Bacon or Adrian Smith or... Uh, uh, Gene Stothard or uh, Bob Roseland or Rusty Hike or Dave, like whoever, like whatever, whoever you're, you despise that's an authority in the state of Nebraska. I don't know. Our authority is not ultimately owed to them. Do you hear me? Yeah. Our authority is not ultimately owed to them. Our authority is, is to God. We obey God. And he's commanded us to obey these human institutions so long as they don't direct us to sin. So it doesn't matter, kids, if your parents aren't perfect. Oh, man. 
God is perfect and he sees and knows everything that happens. But let me close with this consideration. Uh, and I promise I'm, I'll be as quick and concise as I can be. The Bible gives instructions in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2 on the subject of obeying government authority even when it's unjust. And most of what you'll find there isn't very American. It just isn't. So I've chosen this approach to our passage, Colossians 3.25 and 4.1, from the angle of what to expect when you defy abuse of authority, because I believe that the warnings to the wicked in Scripture are mostly there to encourage the obedient. That's a mouthful. I think the reason the Bible says the wrongdoer will be repaid is to comfort us. You hear me? Okay. Not because I believe it should be common for Christians to defy authority. The Bible wants to remind us that evil people will be judged for the pain and sorrow they inflict on us. But it's also here to warn the abusers. All right, if Saul's guard, when Saul said, kill the priests, if he had whipped out his New Testament, which didn't exist, flipped to Colossians 3.25 and read it to Saul, I doubt very much Saul would have cared. I don't think, I mean, he knew the, the oracles of God. He knew the commandment that had been given to Moses. He didn't, I don't think he would have cared, but that doesn't excuse us from, uh, from reminding those in authority of, of these biblical principles. So, like there were a few times in 2020 that I refused to wear a mask, mainly at church, when I was just like, no, I'm sorry, but the government doesn't have the authority to instruct us on what we wear to worship. I just felt like there's a pretty clear constitutional line there. Um, and, and I publicly opposed the city council to their masked faces when they were enacting the mask mandate in Papillion. But when I did it, I did it with fear and trembling. It matters. And I did it while I waited with my mask on, right? When some of my friends opposed the curfew Papillion enacted in June of 2020, they did it with phone calls, questions, conversations, and appeals to authority, not by storming City Hall and taking a selfie with their feet up on the mayor's desk. So I don't think it'll come as a surprise to any of you to learn that I'm not a terribly compliant person. And I understand that this is all just going to sound like I'm justifying myself, but I want us to really consider where are gospel opportunities going to be found? If you're subject to authority, which is being abused, but your life is not in danger and you're not being told to sin, you should endure it patiently. I'll say it again. If you're subject to authority, which is being abused, but your life is not in danger and you're not being told to sin, you're just being mistreated, you should endure it patiently. Yes, but you should also point it out. Say something. That's where gospel opportunities are going to be found. John the Baptist could have been like, man, it's none of my business who Herod sleeps with. 
He's, he's the ruler in Judea. He needs to be told this is not lawful. What you're doing is illegal, right? So, but what's the goal of our instruction? 1 Timothy uh, 1.5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, with sincere faith. And if it comes time to defy abusive authority, then our goal should be the same. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. If our conduct doesn't point people to the cross and to redemption, if our speech isn't seasoned with with the salt of grace, we will give an account for our disrespect, disobedience, and rebellion. So be really, really careful about getting your moral, moral rather, convictions from like trumpforemperor.truthpatriot.secondamendment.org. Not a good place to go get your convictions. You feel me? Or can I get an amen? All right. We're going to give an account too. So here's the deal. Weird sermon, Right? What song do you sing to close this one? The Battle Hymn of the Republic? (laughs) But here's the deal. You have until Wednesday morning to reach out to me or one of the elders and say, we need a more detailed teaching series on this subject. Or I'm moving on. Realizing I have not address the half of what the Bible has to say about this issue. It's more nuanced than we can imagine. Here's what I am trying to say. If you're going to rebel, you better be able to do it with a clear conscience and an open Bible. And the goal should be the kingdom of God and his glory, not your kingdom and your glory. Amen? All right, let's pray.